Yeah, real people, real stories, this is what we know well Yeah, this is our truth today with Farron DeBell Time to get it started quick, not just here for gossiping Everything from entertainment, even talking politics This for everybody, at the gym or working steady For your sister, brother, rabbi, even for your granny Our truth today, trust, you don't wanna miss it Real people, real stories, come through and take a listen Yeah, follow on IG at Our Truth Today Yeah Welcome to Our Truth Today with Baron DeBell. I'm Tyra Dial. Women have always led organizations, even before the world knew who was really in charge. But today, some argue that visible female leaders are at an all-time high. This year, IBM named Admiral Michelle Howard as the first woman to its board of directors. The corporation named its first female CEO, Ginny Ramadi, seven years ago. In the European Union, the UK is about to lose its second female prime minister and Angela Merkel serving her 14th year as the first female chancellor of Germany. Another German official, Ursula von der Leyen, is the first woman to hold the position of defense minister in Germany, and she is nominated as the new EU president. International Monetary Fund Chief Christine Lagarde from France is poised to be the first female head of the European Central Bank. And back in America, Congress has the largest number of women serving. Today on Our Truth Today, we highlight successful women. Some who may have hit roadblocks in their careers as a result of bias. But one thing all of our future guests today have in common is that they all left lucrative jobs to venture out on their own, and they are all seeing success. First up, Farron caught up with Anjali Badani to talk about her successful careers in theater, then finance, and now a new path. We're with Anjali Badani. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? I am a born in USA, Indian American, and I've lived in Chicago for 25 years. Wow. And I have had two careers so far, so I'm starting a third one soon. Excellent. Uh, um, I was a stage manager in theater for 10 years, and then I worked in finance for 11 years. I realized like I was the only like Indian kid doing theater except for one other person. Um, which is in a, in a larger school. Like you think, oh, that's kind of weird. I was pre-med and I did theater on the side. Okay. Um, I finished two majors that were not theater. So you were successful in theater and, you know, sort of kind of sort of successful uh, academically in what you were trying to go into. What did your parents think of that? When I told them I was quitting pre-med, I was producing a show and stage managing another show. And my mom came up to see the show I was producing. Said, I think I'm going to finish my requirements, but I'm not going to take the MCAT. She said, okay. And I think she had no idea, right? My parents had no choice. You were either a doctor or an engineer in India. And so for me to go be like, I'm going to go do theater. And they had no idea what that world meant. And I was freelance. So I had a, I, I got a fellowship right out of college called the Alan Lee Hughes Fellowship. Alan Lee Hughes was one of the first black lighting designers, like at a regional level in the 60s. And so there's a fellowship for people of color. Um, and so my mentor at the time got me the the fellowship and I moved to DC for a year and I made $200 a week for like 60 to 80 hours a week of work but it was like my, my grad school when I was going through a major shift in my life I was in the middle of a divorce my parents it came up they're like why didn't you go to medical school I was trying to like make weeks to get health insurance I was always kind of scrambling for my next job um, I was working retail on the side so that I would always have something and the problem is that also in theater I was really lucky my career took off super fast, but then 
I hit some roadblocks because I didn't know that I was supposed to act a certain way as a woman or as a person of color. And there aren't a lot of... What way? What are you, how are you supposed to act? So I believed, like when you work in theater, when it's like not for very much money and you're all doing it for the love of the work, that if you have something constructive to say about making a show better, you should get to say it. And if you're the stage manager and you're putting in 60 to 80 hours a week and like you know this show inside out, you are the person who gets to say like, hey, maybe if we do this again, have a, another crew person backstage. And I put that in a report at a theater I was working at after like a really bad show where it was like clear that we were just not equipped to handle something going wrong. Not only did I get like an, an angry email back to me, like, how dare you suggest? Like I had made a joke about it, like, hey, we'll have funeral services for the microphone in the back tomorrow. And then I got another email, like, the performance report is not a forum for jokes. And then that theater blacklisted me. That shouldn't be enough to, like, keep me from working in a building. So you think that was uh, because you were a woman or because you were a woman of color or both? I wonder. Like, it's it's hard. I mean, at the time when the crew found out, like, the response, they were like, our other stage managers, it would have been no problem for them to say that, right? But they're all men. They're like, it's that's not cool at all. That's totally because you're a woman. So I ended up temping because no one will hire anybody with a stage manager <laughs> resume. And then both places I temped at offered me jobs, but then Wicked called me and said, hey, like we want you to cover um, a vacation for a week and then turned into a month. And then they're like, we love you, stay forever. We were living, losing a second stage manager. And there was a woman in town who had already been a sub like knew how to call the show, knew all, knew everybody. And I was, I was, she should get the job of that second assistant. And he decided to hire a guy he'd worked with before who had to move from New York to Chicago, who didn't know the show. And like, I'd worked with him before. And I'm like, are you kidding? He's not that good. Like, and I think I, looking back, I'm like, oh, another instance of like not giving the right person the job. But he wanted somebody who was going to like not question him at all, right? And I was like, you know what? If I leave, then she gets, that guy moves up and she, then this woman will get the job that she should have. And it worked out. Um, so I tempt and I worked again. And then I worked for this very, very wealthy man who runs his own money and is a, runs a fund of funds. And I learned all about what that life is like in terms of super high net worth individuals who have like 50% of a plane and you play, schedule a plane and you schedule some bird shoots and so one would think that in that sort of community that being a woman of color probably isn't a good thing so how, how did that end in up finance out? yeah um it is it was that was a tiny family office so it's like three people three employees plus me um it only i only really felt it when I was the office manager slash executive assistant slash research for the portfolio manager. Um, and they hired a guy to come in and be the research assistant and they were automatically paying him more than I made. And I asked my boss, I said, that's not fair. Like I've been here for five and a half years. I know your entire family's social security numbers. Like I'm proving myself trustworthy. I'm on call all the time. And he said, well, I can't pay you that much. And he didn't really have an answer of why. It was more like, oh, my husband should take care of me. Then I ended up networking into the job that I just left. And I was there for six years. And it worked out pretty well, except for since the election, he 
people say things that they maybe should have not said out loud. And then you start, I think I started waking up to like the overall microaggressions in finance and noticing that most financial firms don't have a lot of women. Um, and it was in private equity, so there's really not a lot of women. But I decided life was too short to be like biting my tongue at work or just like, oh, now they're gonna forget to include me on this meeting. If you're gonna continue to make me feel like I'm not important to the team, then why am I doing this? So were you able to, at, at that point in your life, uh, were you able to still rely on your family or like how do folks make that kind of change if they don't have any resources? Well, I saved, okay. and I saved a lot of money. And I will say like, we have our mortgage with my mother and she's been super supportive of, she paid for my husband's school. Indian culture is like education above everything else. Like that is the value, that is where you put your money. And my father did leave some insurance money. So I'm using the insurance money to go back to school for organizational psychology. Thanks, Baron. Coming up after the break, Capri talks with author Marilyn Rames about turning her religious calling into a business. Homelessness. It may be hard for you to imagine, but the fastest growing group of homeless people are under the age of six. A six-year-old. Is this what you think of when you think of homelessness? If you or someone you know needs help getting their kids into school, please call the Illinois State Board of Education Homeless Coordinator at 1-800-215-6379. Our Truth Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at OurTruth.Today and ConversationsWith.net. Our next successful woman is Tracy Bain, the publisher of the Chicago Reader newspaper, author of more than a dozen books and movies, and founder of several other periodicals. Tracy says the key to her 35 years in business is loving what she does. I feel the luckiest person in terms of accidentally having this career that I have and the ability to do what I love. Until age 40, I played soccer and, and had a lot of other experiences in my life. So I'm not one-dimensional in terms of this community and this newspaper thing, and I have amazing friends. But I also feel like what I do is my work and my hobby all in one. You know, I did a family newsletter when I was 10 years old. To me, it's, it's like breathing. She said that businesswomen shouldn't jump in over their heads and should evaluate business opportunities like she did with the reader. When the Sun-Times was first purchased a couple years ago by a group of unions and other individuals, I actually approached them and said, you know, what are you thinking about for the reader? Because I had seen that it had been pretty neglected. And then a few months later, they had a really racist cover on the front of the reader and they fired the editor. And so I contacted Edwin Eisendrath, the publisher at the time of the Sun-Times, and I said, you know, I could come in for a few months and run the reader for you just to see if there's something viable and fixable there. And then when I met with him, he said, well, you can have it. <laughs> and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. It turned out it had been losing so much money. I mean, had I taken it over then, about a year ago, it would have folded. Like, I didn't have the resources. So I, I let it go. I was like, okay, that was nice. That was fun to think about, but no. And then over the summer, they announced new ownership, but they didn't really have a plan for the day-to-day -day running of the paper when it was apparent that the problems were really deep and there was no business, no, no um, real sales plan or anything. They had great editorial people, but otherwise it needed a lot more work than, than they were ready for. They were about to close the paper. And the new owners were gonna tell, sometimes they were gonna back out. But then the union called me 
and asked me if I was interested and they hadn't known I had been. But then I reached out to Edwin again and I said, Edwin, if the new owners have the money and they're looking for someone to run it, let's talk. The owners are Elsie Hegenbottom and uh, Len Goodman. So I met with their representatives, um, two women, and I actually gave them a business plan because I had already been thinking about it. So I turned around this business plan in 24 hours and uh, they, they said, it's yours if you want it. Bame also owns Windy City Times and has run several niche periodicals for LGBT people, Blacks, and Latinos. She said these communities are loyal to those who support them, but corporations still often reject supporting niche organizations. Almost everybody stereotyped those communities as not having any money or loyalty or anything. I mean, it was, it was horrible. Even though I know that every time you get another outsider check against your name, you're more loyal to those who appreciate you and represent you authentically. If you'd like to hear a longer interview with Tracy, just visit us online at rtruth.today and listen to the extended Pride episode. For Our Truth Today, I'm Tyra Deal. Our Truth Today. Last month, the FDA approved what's being called the female Viagra. Belisi, like the first such drug on the market, flybanserin, can be dangerous when taking in proximity of alcohol. Dr. Beth McAvery at Mount Sinai Hospital told Brides Magazine that women should try lifestyle changes first and then talk to their gynecologist to determine the best course of action. Critics of both drugs say, besides the side effects, women should not be deemed effective because they have low sexual desire. And Native Americans are pushing for a new bill that was introduced in Congress this week to right the wrongs of of the Wounded Knee Massacre in which soldiers killed hundreds of women and children in the 1890s and were later awarded medals for their act. Roz Brown from PNS reports. Legislation to rescind medals awarded to soldiers following the massacre of nearly 300 women and children at South Dakota's Wounded Knee in 1890 was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives on Tuesday. The legislation followed a letter-writing campaign that began earlier this year by U.S. Navy veteran Oliver O.J. Siemens of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe. Siemens says if passed, the Remove the Stain Act would acknowledge wrongs committed by the U.S. Army on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation by the 20 soldiers who were later awarded medals. Our culture is never about money. Our culture has always been about justice and what is right. And repatriation to us on these medals is rescinding them. The Remove the Stain effort to take back the medals began after a controversial tweet by President Donald Trump earlier this year, mocking Democratic presidential candidate Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts as Pocahontas. Siemens says it represented the perpetual disdain for Native Americans that has led to their marginalization in U.S. society. Siemens says he was glad to hear the lawmakers say their bill is intended to right a wrong and to begin the process of healing and reconciliation. As a veteran, I do not believe that any medal should be awarded to any soldier that kills women and children. That's why it should happen. None of South Dakota's congressional delegation was part of the news conference, but spokespeople for U.S. Senators John Thune and Mike Rounds told the Argus leader they would review the bill when the text becomes available. At the time, Rounds criticized the president's tweet, saying the Wounded Knee Massacre should not be used as a punchline. For Public News Service, I'm Roz Brown. Thanks, Roz. I'm Tyra Dion, and that's it for Our Truth Today News. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on ConversationsWith.net.
Books are sometimes windows, offering views of worlds that may be real or imagined, familiar or strange. These windows are sliding glass doors and readers only have to walk through an imagination to become part of whatever world has been created or recreated by the author. When lighting conditions are just right, however, a window can also be a mirror. Literature transforms human experience and reflects it back to us. And in that reflection, we can see our own lives and experiences as part of the larger human experience. Reading then becomes a means of self-affirmation and readers often seek their mirrors in books. And I'm here this week with our new correspondent for Book Talk, Megan Rose. Welcome, Megan. Since it's your first time with us, tell us a little about yourself. So I am a middle school librarian at Rye Country Day School in Rye, New York, about 25 miles north of New York City. I am super passionate about children's literature, everything from picture books all the way up to novels. I spend a lot of time in this world. Why are books important? It's not only a source of learning, but it's also a source of entertainment. It's a source of stress release. Books offer an opportunity for for children and adults alike to see themselves in new ways, find themselves in different places. I just feel like nothing offers you greater emotional and social support than snuggling up with a book and, and just getting lost in a story. You're a juror for the Coretta Scott King Awards. Tell us about that award. The CSK uh, Book Awards just celebrated its 50th anniversary um, this year. It's an award that was founded in 1969 by two Black women librarians, Mabel McKissick and Glendon Greer. At the time, there were no awards that honored the achievements of African-American writers or the African diaspora. and. At the time, there were several awards that were popular for children and still are, the, the Newbery Medal and the Carnegie Medal. And at that point, I don't believe that any Black authors had won those awards. Why should we care that there are brown people telling these stories? The term we're using now, our own voices, where we want books that represent our experience that we see ourselves in. Um, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop has a, coined a term called windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. And it's all of the ways in which children, not just black children, but all children can see themselves in books. They can see others in books. They can share in that experience through a window, a mirror, or a sliding glass door. We've spent a lifetime learning about white people. Um, we've spent a lifetime learning, uh, reading books by white authors. And it's not that white authors can't tell these stories, but I do think that there is value and there's a whole movement that we should be able to tell our own stories um, and that we should be able to publish our own stories at the same rate that anyone else publishes any story. The award was created and the very first award was given to an author, Lily, Lilia Patterson, in 1970 for a biography she wrote on uh, Dr. Martin Luther King called Man of Peace. And so when these two ladies, Miss McKissick and Miss Greer, had the idea to 
create this award, they wanted it to honor someone who embodied what this award is about, about the African diaspora. That's important. And I think about for children of color who have long not had the same number of books available to them, the same number of texts written that explores their experience and not just our experience, but books that talk the way we talk, that sound the way we sound, that conjure up childhoods in ways that we understand them. You know, I think about growing up on the South side of Chicago, things that were small things that were just a part of my everyday life. Um, going outside, playing late at night, you know, running through sprinklers, these sorts of experiences that felt like just my experience. That's what we want books um, that our own voices books to do for them to conjure up experiences that I know that are intrinsically mine and that are intrinsically for black and brown children and all children of color, but also to share that experience with, with every child. Well, let's talk about a book. Normally, we're going to talk about two or three books each time that are appropriate for a particular age group, and we'll rotate that group each week. But for our first talk, let's focus on one. Um, today, I thought I'd start with Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. Jacqueline Woodson is a longtime author. She has a catalog of books that range from, for the youngest readers, picture books, all the way up to um, more recently, having released an adult no novel called Another Brooklyn. So she's been around for a very long time. She's definitely a favorite of mine from, from way back. And I just think Brown Girl Dreaming is just just a perfect book in so many ways. It won the Coretta Scott King Book Awards. Not That's not the reason why I chose it. It also won the National Book Award and it's also uh, a Newbery Honor winner. So this book has received just about the highest praise any book can, can receive and, and rightfully so. It's her memoir of her life growing up uh, being raised between South Carolina and New York in the 60s and 70s. And she's growing up in the shadows of Jim Crow South. She's growing up at the heart of the civil rights movement. And she has a way of story, of, of telling a story that really draws in readers, young and old. And one of my favorite aspects about Brown Girl Dreaming is that it's written in verse. So it's basically poetry. She's telling, I mean, her prose are already amazing, but she's telling her story of growing up and what it means to be this Black girl moving between two spaces. Um, and she's doing so in poetry. I may be a bit of anomaly in our readers, but growing up, I sometimes found poetry challenging to understand. Will I struggle with this book? That's the beauty of uh, a verse novel, as, as we often call them, is that it's not the poetry that we think of. Because like you, I always struggled with poetry too. I wasn't certain that I understood poetry in the way that it's meant for us to understand. But I think that her poetry is different. It doesn't uh, place technique over storytelling. And it also, it very much leads you where she wants you to go. And I think that anyone will read this, they will find it accessible and they'll find that they, they'll need to reread it. Um, not because the poetry of it is hard, but because the storytelling is so powerful and there are so many things missed the first time around and so much gained and by a second and a third read. I'll check it out. 
I'm Capri Fernandez-Wildy with Megan Rose for this episode of Book Talk. Thanks for being with us today, Megan, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you. I look forward to it. For information about any of the books discussed in Book Talk and for more books for readers of all ages, check out our website at ourtruth.today. Coming up on Our Truth Today with Baron DeBell. Coming up after the break, Capri Fernandez talks with Arthur Marlon Raines about making her religious nonprofit, Teachers Who Pray, a successful business. I'm Capri Fernandez Wildy. We want to respect your time, so most of our episodes are only 30 minutes long. But if you hear an interview, or like this one, and want to hear more, we may have extended edition interviews online. Just click on the Shows tab on OurTruth.Today. The shows are not over yet. Stay tuned for a sneak peek at upcoming shows. We'll be right back. Knowing your breasts can save your life. Go to knowyourgirls.org for the facts you need on breast health. Brought to you by Susan G. Coleman and the Ad Council. Our Truth Today. News, entertainment, politics, health and well-being, social justice. Visit us online at OurTruth.Today and ConversationsWith.net. I'm here with Vicki Quaddy, entrepreneurial actress, producer, writer. Welcome, Vicki. Thank you for having me, Farron. It's great to see you. You've had a long career in entertainment and writing. Your production company, Nuns for Entertainment, has been producing the hit show Late Night Catechism for 26 years now. Congratulations on your continued success. Thank you. It's actually called Nuns for Fun Entertainment. Nuns for Fun Entertainment. That's right, because you have to have the fun in there, you know? <laughs> people don't, don't, you know, people just uh, assume that nuns are not fun, but that's not true. It isn't always about the ruler and, uh, and the discipline, although that's there. But, you know, nuns are pretty fun. They're, they're pretty cool people. I've been to your show, and your nuns are fun, so I, I, I buy that. Absolutely. How many countries have you guys been in now? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, U.S., Canada, obviously. Um, England, Ireland, Malaysia, Australia. Oh, and then I, um, I took Bible Bingo recently to, to Singapore. I did two performances just last month uh, in Singapore, and I've been to Guam with Bible Bingo, because I have a whole line of bingo right. comedies as well. So how do people around the world find out about you? Been in Chicago for a very long time, and you've been around the United States for a very long time, but how do people around the world find out about you? It's often because somebody has come to the United States on vacation. Um, that's what happened in Singapore. A woman happened to be in Chicago and saw, I believe she saw, she they wanted Bible bingo, so I'm only guessing that they saw that, and um, thought this would be something that, that people would like in Singapore. Cool. Otherwise, it's people who see it on the internet now. Let's first talk about when you got into this so i went to moraine valley community college out in palace hills uh and and again i loved it i just i immediately connected to that school if that school had been four years i'd have gone there all four years um and i worked at the at the newspaper um and uh, and loved that um and then leaving there i went to northern illinois university so you know when you're paying for your own you you uh, it's smarter to stay in state um but i lucked out too because i got grants so that was also very good um, yeah, so then I got my degree in journalism and, and hit the road, man. I started working for daily newspapers. I, I wrote for the ABA Journal, and then I went to work for um, the ABA Press. Okay. 
So, and I had worked during those years, I worked at the reader uh, as a freelancer. I did a lot of freelance writing for about 12 years or so. I did work at uh, Newsweek magazine, but what happened was late night catechism. It just took off. And I decided in January, well, in late 99, I decided that it was time to, if you're going to do it, you got to devote your time to it. What was your family situation like when you started? Um, I was divorced. I was divorced. I had three kids. They were young, you know, um, you had a lot of responsibilities. Uh, Huge responsibility. <laughs> Things like a steady paycheck, <laughs> uh, health insurance. So when you give that up, you are you are stepping off a ledge, and it is really terrifying. But I had faith in my abilities, and I thought I can make this happen. And if it didn't happen, I have enough smarts I could fall back on some other job. What What did your teenagers think? I think, they, I think they thought, why isn't mom going to work? <laughs> why is she always hanging out here? And uh, But the other thing is I could also pick them up. I could do things. If the school said, we need a little help. And when you're working for yourself, you can say, okay, I've got I to gotta get them to school and you know, get up, make their lunch, do all that junk, get them to school. Then I could work for a few hours. And oh, if they need something at the school, I could do it. I, so I was the parent often that was doing stuff at school. Um, and... Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think ultimately they they liked it. They liked the fact that I was there. Was it ever? Uh, I know when I started spending more time with my son, um, it, it, I think he may have liked it in the beginning, and then he it was like, uh, "Don't you have some place to go?" Did they ever get annoyed? I decided I could no longer operate the company out of my home because it was uh, we had no we had no dining room. My the dining room table was my office. And that got to be old pretty quickly. To have a desk somewhere where you're out of your home, I think made a big difference for me. It seems like maybe it makes it real too. I used to have people would say to me um, when I worked at home, they'd say, oh, oh, isn't that nice? You have a little home office. It's a business. I'm, I'm running a company. But having an office, having a location outside of your home really did make people think, oh, oh, it is a business. You know, yes, it's a business. We heard over and over from women that they made less than men. Uh, they were passed over for promotions for less qualified men. Sometimes they can't even get their foot in the door. And maybe it's obvious. I don't know the answer. But why are there so many obstacles for women to succeed in business? Well, I can tell you that when I first started uh, working for myself, it was being taken seriously. Uh, it was being uh, having someone say that uh, you really know what you're doing. And I, and I do think that as women... Uh, we've constantly uh, have to fight that uh, that idea that uh, that we're able to accomplish something that we actually do know. Um, but I think that's I mean I, I do hope that's changing. But when I worked at the American Bar Association, that's where I really saw the disparity. Um, I saw men being hired in at at more um, and uh, with less experience. That was infuriating. Um, but the only way to deal with that was to, uh, at, at every year, ask for more. Just keep keep asking uh, until they got tired of you. And, <laughs> and gave it to you. Yeah, or, or didn't. You know, <laughs> just told you to go away. Yeah. Well, when you're working for yourself, you know, I was recently discussing uh, business with a young person who argued um, that you have to stick it out. And I don't know that I fully agree with my own pushback, but I said a good business person knows when to give up. Uh, what are your thoughts on when it's time to quit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's a great question. When, when is the time to quit? I suppose it's time to quit when it is no longer nourishing you, 
when every morning you wake up and say, oh God, I can't stand this. It's time to quit. I am not there. I love working in theater. I love creating. I love writing. Um, I love producing. I love meeting people. I love being on stage. I love hearing people laugh. In your time with uh, Nuns for Fun, uh, did you have lean years? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Lean years and lean months. I mean, summer in Chicago is always tough. What advice would you give to a young woman entrepreneur who's got a new business and she's trying to maybe a great product, great service, but nobody knows about it? How how does she get that information out? You got to figure out what your what your audience is. I know my audience. My audience is female. It skews, we say, 35 to death. So then how do you get to that? You know, where where can I put my money or my time? You know, really know who your audience is and then go after that. And should folks double dip? Should they continue working while they're trying to start their business? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you got to pay the bills. So I don't call that double dipping. (laughs) I call that being smart. I was working at the American Bar Association when I was writing Late Night Catechism. And I had three kids. And I was uh, coming in on the weekends uh, and and sitting at the at my computer at work and writing there because I it was hard to write at home. Is there ever a point that a woman who's been thinking about uh, starting a, a business of her own should decide not to? You always have to calculate failure. If if it fails, can I survive? If your life has elements to it that absolutely. Um, are are the the kind of elements that would suffer from a decision to go into business, and you can't afford that suffering. Then I think you have to really take a look at what you're doing. Um, but if you have a, a desire and you can figure out how to make that work, whether it's taking on a partner, whether it's um, doing it part time, um, testing the waters, um, I think that's always a smart thing to do to see if it's if there's something out there. Will this possibly work? And then build from there. I always start small. Don't think I have to start this big, so big, with, uh, with a, a huge budget that you have to the, uh, meet. Just doesn't make any sense. So I, I think people are always afraid to start small. What's, up, what's coming up next for you? Oh, I'm working on stuff right now. Actually, I have um, a new Halloween show that's um, going to open here at the Royal George. Um, it's called Holy Ghost Bingo. It's going to be a lot of fun. Where can people find out more about you and your productions? Well, the productions, they can go to nunsforfun.com, but that's nuns, N-U-N-S, the number four, fun, all one word, nunsforfun.com. And they can get info on all the all the shows and, and uh, all the offers that we have. We do a monthly offer. People can come, you know, two for one, things like that. All right, sounds good. Vicki, thanks for joining us today. Oh, Farron, this is fabulous. Thank you so much. What a great story. Late Night Catechism and Bible Bingo play at the historic Royal George Theater every week in Chicago. Visit nunsforfun.com for more details. You're listening to Our Truth Today with Farron DeBell on conversationswith.net. Marilyn Rames was a successful journalist with People and Time magazine and decided to leave her budding career to teach underserved students in the inner city. Marilyn, what made you make the change? I've been teaching Sunday school in my church for like four or five years and loving it every week. And 
secretly fantasizing about what my life could be like as a teacher. And then when 9-11 happened, I was on duty as a reporter. I just made up my mind then that I was going to stop dreaming about what my life could be like if I took that plunge. And I actually decided that day that I would do it. You recently released The Master Teacher, 12 Spiritual Lessons That Can Transform Schools and Revolutionize Public Education. How do teachers revolutionize public education with prayer? I think that we're really the only ones who can do it. I truly believe that prayer forces a teacher to confess (laughs) their weaknesses. I've seen teachers who've been at their wits end and felt like I can't do this job anymore pray and consistently pray, not just like one time prayer, but like consistently contend in prayer and emerge so strong and so unstoppable. And it's a spiritual weaponry that it, I can't tell you exactly how it happens, but I do know that something happens in the hearts and minds of the teachers and God gives them the strength to say, you know what? I'm not going to fall apart. I'm going to be okay. And then doors begin to open. It happens to me regularly. Even recently, I was in Las Vegas just a few days ago, and I entered into the casino where the hotel was, and I just felt like, why why am I here? This is like the last place I want to be because I have so much on me, so much pressure financially and just in my own family and just trying to move this organization. And and I'm seeing people that look so sad and broken at these, these slot machines. And I'm like, this is not inspiring me for education. Like, I don't know. I just had a really sour attitude about like where this conference was located. I just had to go and pray and like take my anxiety to God and really cried out in my hotel room and said, Lord, I'm not feeling this. I'm not happy. I don't know what you have for me. Why did you place me here? But please just help me open a door for me. Show me exactly what you want me to do and who you want me to meet and how you want me to show up in this place. By the end of that day, I had three really strong networking opportunities where they've invited me to come speak at a conference in Orlando and I got a huge order for my books and I got a contract to help with the state of Illinois. I was like, Lord, then the darkness is where the light shines the brightest. And in addition to that, I met several young teachers and administrators who I literally pray with at the casino. (laughs) It would not have happened had I not been vulnerable with God and authentically and confessed my own sin and anxiety and fear. And I think that that is really what it takes for teachers to get up every day, go in that building and say, you know what, I'm the one to to change it. Today is going to be a good day. Are there lessons in your book that can apply to everyone? I think so. So the premise of my book is that if you went out on the street and asked, what do you know about Jesus Christ? He would most likely say he was a good teacher. That's a very common 
answer. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. The book is that most people think he's a good teacher, yet we don't study he, what he taught or how he taught. Even as educators, it just, it just never comes up, really. And if he is, in fact, the most influential, best teacher, most influential teacher who ever lived, then I think he deserves to be studied for his philosophy of education, pedagogy, and how he might give professional development to teachers. So everyone is a teacher in some way. Even if you're selling drugs, you're teaching and by your actions, you're teaching someone. The book can teach teachers, non-teachers, teachers who don't even believe there's a God. I think that these principles are, like I said, pretty universal. You know, no one ever made a law saying you should not being nice to people. <laughs> and that is I uh, like one of the principles that he has that Jesus has is you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so we just unpack a lot of those things and put it in a volume that's a really quick read and easily digestible. And I'm hoping that people will read it in all different sectors, but especially in education, because that's where my heart is. So one lesson that people in the side when they read it it's called called before hired in the bible jesus goes and he calls the disciples and pretty much says hey you over there drop your net and follow me just follow me the disciples drop their nets and peter and andrew and others they just follow him and they listen to him and and then he tells a story about how there's a difference between a person who is called like a shepherd, a shepherd will leave his flock of 99 sheep and go follow that one that's lost. A hireling is someone who he's just doing his job. He's really not a shepherd at heart. If he sees that one that goes off and it's about to be attacked by a lion, he's not going to risk his life to get that one when he's going to go and try to protect the other 99. But a shepherd's not. A shepherd's going to go and he's going to fight for that one because he doesn't want to lose any of his sheep. They're all important. It's kind of taboo to talk about it, but it's true. Like there are teachers and administrators who they do their job, but when times get tough, they're, they're like, hey, I didn't sign up for this. And they're out. Even if they're physically in the building, mentally they're out. And and we all have worked with them. We've all seen those and they're hirelings. And so I feel like there's a difference between being called to education and having that passion and having that zeal. You feel like God really put you there. And then those who are just kind of just doing a job. You made two somewhat unorthodox business decisions. You made a business out of a nonprofit and that business was based on religion. What advice would you give to women who have an idea, but think it may be out of the mainstream? You find a need. Like that's what entrepreneurism is. You have a felt need that you see yourself and you meet that need. Sometimes it is unorthodox, like religion in schools. Everybody's like, you can't do that. You can't do that. But that's a perception. It's completely legal to pray before school or after school on a duty-free lunch break with other teachers. That was written explicitly in the No Child Left Behind law. <laughs> Constitutional lawyers know that, but regular like school administrators don't know that. And they don't teach you that in education school. There is no class on 
religious liberties in schools. No one teaches you that. So you hear the refrain separation of church and state and that's it. That just means no, no, just no, don't even ask. I am a provocative thinker, not to just be like a shock jock or anything, but I do question a lot. You said no, but why? Who told you that? Like, where is that written? Show me the actual primary source that says you cannot. I just encourage women to go with your instinct. I need to tell myself yes, even when other people are telling me no. My, I love my mom, but even when I told her I want to start teaching to pray, she said, you can't do that. That's illegal, you know, and now she's one of my biggest supporters. So you just got to keep going. And even if your mama says <laughs> it's not going to work or, you know, it's just because that God didn't give her the vision. He gave it to me. Marilyn, how can listeners learn about Teachers Who Pray or contact you if they want to learn more? Yes, yeah, so teachershopray.org is our website. Like us on Facebook and grow the network because the dream is that every single school in America will have a group of teachers of faith who are part of Teachers Who Pray. Congratulations on your success. And thanks for being with us on Our Truth Today. Thank you for having me. I had That's a lot of the fun. end of our show. For Baron DeBell, I'm Tyra Dion. Join us next week, same time, same day, Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern on your favorite podcast provider or at OurTruth.Today. Catch our upcoming shows on immigration and college. Is it worth it? Opinions expressed are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent Our Truth Today or its hosts, producers, or advertisers. Show ideas are welcome and can be sent to info at rtruth.today.